This is an Emmaus Church podcast. For more information about Emmaus Church, please visit EmmausDenver.com. All right. Um, yeah, if you'd remain standing, uh, we're going to read from Isaiah chapter 6 and 7. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim, each had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? Then I said, Here am I, send me. And he said, Go and say to this people, Keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull, and their ears heavy, and blind their eyes, lest they see with their ears, and hear with their, sorry, (laughs) lest they see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their hearts, and turn and be healed. Then I said, how long, O Lord? And he said, until cities lie waste without inhabitant, and houses without people, and the land is desolate waste, and the Lord removes people far away, and the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. And though a tenth remain in it, It will be burned again like a terebinth or an oak whose stump remains when it is felled. The holy seed is its stump. In the days of Ahaz, the son of Jotham, son of Uzziah, king of Judah, Rezin, the king of Syria, and Pekah, the son of Remilia, the king of Israel, came up to Jerusalem to wage war against it, but could not yet mount an attack against it. When the house of David was told, Syria is in league with Ephraim, The heart of Ahaz and the heart of his people shook as the trees of the forest shake before the wind. And the Lord said to Isaiah, Go out to meet Ahaz, you and Shir Jeshub, your son, at the end of the conduit of the upper pool on the highway to the washer's field, and say to him, Be careful, be quiet, do not fear, and do not let your heart be faint because of these two smoldering stumps of firebrands, as the fierce anger of Rezin and Syria and the son of Remilia. Because Syria, with Ephraim and the son of Remilia, has devised evil against you, saying, Let us go up against Judah and terrify it, and let us conquer it for ourselves, and set up the son of Tabil as king in the midst of it. Thus says the Lord God, It shall not stand, and it shall not come to pass. For the head of Syria is Damascus, and the head of Damascus is Rezin. And within sixty-five years, And the head of Ephraim is Samaria, and the head of Samaria is the son of Remilia. If you are not firm in faith, you will not be firm at all. Again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz, Ask a sign of your Lord 
your God. Let it be deep as Sheol or high as heaven. But Ahaz said, I will not ask, and I will not put the Lord to the test. And he said, Hear then, O house of David, is it too little for you to weary men that you weary my also? Therefore, the Lord himself give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall, and shall call his name Emmanuel. He shall eat curds and honey when he knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good. For before the boy knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land whose two kings you dread will be deserted. And the Lord will bring upon you and upon your people and upon your father's house such days as have not come since the day that Ephraim departed from Judah, the king of Assyria. In that day, the Lord will whistle for the fly that is in the end of the stream of Egypt and the bee that is in the land of Assyria, and they will all come and settle in the steep ravines and in all the clefts of the rocks and on all the thorn bushes and on all the pastures. In that day, the Lord will shave with a razor that is hired beyond the river with the king of Assyria, the head and the hair of the feet, and it will sweep away the beard also. In that day, a man will keep alive a young cow and two sheep, and because of the abundance of milk that they give, he will eat curds, for everyone who is left in the land will eat curds and honey. In that day, every place where they used to be a thousand vines worth a thousand shekels of silver will become briars and thorns. With bow and arrows, a man will come there, for all the land will be briars and thorns. And as for all the hills that used to be hoed with a hoe, you will not come there for fear of briars and thorns, but they will become a place where cattle are let loose and where sheep tread. This is the word of the Lord. All right, you can be seated. Thank you, Tim, for jumping into that marathon scripture reading at the absolute last minute for us. I appreciate that. Um, I, we, we do have a few announcements. Um, I thought it would be kinder to our surprise scripture reader this morning to just have them focus on the word, um, but we do have a few announcements that I wanted to go over. Um, we have uh, Meet Mateo. No one on the live stream can see him, but he's very cute. Um, the Walls had their baby this last week, so we're excited for them, um, and I'm sure everybody is excited to meet the little guy. Uh, right now, we're kind of leaning towards, looks like Levi, but it's, uh, it's kind of early to tell. But yeah, he's adorable, even from the picture. So look out for the uh, meal train email. Uh, Kelsey will send that out sometime this week. Um, another announcement is our covenant members meeting. And there's a handful of things kind of wrapped up in that meeting. If you're a covenant member or you're interested in becoming a covenant member, it's a great meeting to attend. Um, we originally had it for the 16th, which was a Monday, um, but we're moving it to the 18th, which is a Wednesday night of November. Um, and that's the kind of an exciting reason for that. Uh, we talked about it last Sunday, but we came to an agreement with uh, uh, the Sterling event space. And so the 22nd of November will be our first Sunday in the new space, which a bunch of us are excited about. I'm like, <laughs> trying, yeah, right. So there's some a uh, little bit of a hollering. Um, I, you know, it's nice for me because I get to walk uh, to church because I just live next door, so I'm definitely going to miss that. Uh, and there's some wonderful things about this space, and we've been thankful for it for the last two, you know, two and a half years. Um, it's been a great space for us. 
But we think that moving into the Sterling event space will give us a little more stability just as a church. We can actually meet in a larger area, um, so we won't have everybody in the room back there, right? High people in the back room. Uh, and we'll, we'll be able to fit more people uh, socially distance. And then if uh, coronavirus ever goes away, um, we'll actually be able to fit more people in the space. Uh, and it's, you know, it's about a 10-minute drive uh, northwest of here. Um, but yeah, we're pretty excited about that. We actually get to access the space during the week. It's potentially something we could use for our gospel communities. I think Ben is already masterminding um, times where they can uh, practice, uh, the band can rehearse because everything is set up and the equipment is there. Um, so we're pretty, we're pretty excited about it. We have a team of people who are thinking through all the different little pieces that we need. There's a couple of, uh, of pieces of technology that we need to make things work in the new space. So yeah, there's a lot of things going on with the new space, and we're pretty excited about that. Um, you don't have to re remember or write any of these things down. Um, we will send an email for the meal train, and then um, I think tomorrow evening we're planning on sending an email you know what the date is for the new space, letting you know what the covenant members meeting date is as, as far as the change, and you can register there. Um, we're also going to live stream the covenant members meeting, and then also we're going to be doing some fundraising for some for some additional equipment that we don't think is absolutely necessary, but would help uh, just make things easier for the volunteers, would just make the experience a little better, and also make us better neighbors for the the people we're sharing the space with at um, the Sterling event space. So. We're excited about that. I'm going to miss the mansion, but I'm looking forward to sort of settling in. Um, I think I was talking to Cole last night, I think, and um, he was asking about how, why are we spending money on a sign? And um, I was like, no, well, we could actually put a sign on the building that says like Emmaus Church. And he was like, what? <laughs> so that's sort of like a new experience for us, and we're, and we're pretty excited about that. So uh, I don't know if you can tell, but I'm, I'm excited about that. Um, all right, so those were all the announcements. Uh, those were all the things we didn't want to drop on Tim last minute here. So um, we're going through our series in Isaiah. Um, we're sort of cruising through the, the first 12 chapters in Isaiah. And I was, I was thinking about what Ben preached last week. I was, I, was, I was thinking about Ben's sermon. And we had this last week in chapter five, we had this poem about a vineyard uh, that, that God had planted, uh, that God had cared for, that God had protected, uh, that God was careful with where to put it uh, on the hill so that, it, so that it had this vineyard, this beautiful vineyard, this sort of love song that we had in chapter five was, was presented to us in a way that God had done everything he possibly could for his vineyard to produce good fruit. Uh, and if you were here last week at the end of the poem, the, the vineyard ends up producing rotten fruit. So, so you kind of you get an explanation for that poem in the text of Isaiah 2. God says that Israel is his pleasant planting. Um, is, and, and instead of imaging God, they produce wickedness and evil. Instead of righteousness, they produce bloodshed. So now God is going to totally destroy the vineyard which he loves. And uh, it's a, it's a, as I thought about it, it's, it's, a rough, it's a rough poem. And it kind of leads you to this place where you're like, well, now we need a whole new vineyard. We need a whole new vine because God is saying root it out and the whole thing is gonna go away. And Ben, I think, did a, as I thought about it, Ben did a really good job 
of pointing us to the new vine, Jesus himself. He says, I am, Jesus said, I am the true vine, and whoever abides in me will bear much fruit. And I think Ben did a really good job of encouraging us to abide in that true vine. And Ben did a, a good job of pointing us to the fulfillment of all the things in chapter five in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And as I thought about that, I thought, man, we, we read this rough poem about a vine that should do everything right, and it doesn't, so God has to destroy it. We read this, this rough poem in Isaiah chapter five, and then we see Ben kind of bring this together and show us more about the gospel from that poem, and I thought, Isaiah would have killed to hear Ben's sermon last week. And I, you know, and I, and I'm a little bit serious, maybe not the the kill part, but the the Bible tells us that Isaiah longed, Isaiah longed to see the clarity of his own prophecies that we get to see in the person of Jesus Christ. Isaiah actually understood that there was one to come, and it, and it actually unfolds throughout the book of Isaiah. But Isaiah longed to see the clarity and the beauty of the gospel in the face of Jesus Christ. And that's why I can say Isaiah would have loved to actually hear what Ben preached last week. And I thought about that because I think sometimes we take for granted the clarity and the beauty of the gospel that you and I get to see in the Old Testament. Because we live in what the Bible calls these last days, or we live after the death and resurrection of Jesus, you and I get to see more beauty in the gospel than the prophet Isaiah himself. We get to see more beauty in the gospel than the prophet that was shown the heavenly throne. And it's not just last week we talked about the the vine. Uh, We started off this series by talking about a big overview of the book of Isaiah. Isaiah is called God's son, and, and kind of like the picture of the vineyard, God's son sort of rebels and doesn't image God. So God is called to bring judgment and wrath and destruction on God's son. And yet, as God does that in the whole book of Isaiah, it ends up being that God's son is better off than before. There's this, there's this picture of a glorious restoration and a new creation. And we talked about how the, the main theme of Isaiah is actually teaching us about the death of the son of God. Jesus Christ, in the resurrection of the Son of God in the new creation. And then we spent some time in chapters two through four. Um, it's, a, it's kind of a section that does have a lot of, of judgment in the middle of it, but it's bookend by this concept of this, of this new Jerusalem. So we talked about how the idea of this new Jerusalem is, is where God actually dwells with his people. So for some reason in this new Jerusalem, you've got all nations, not just Israel. You have all nations flowing into this new Jerusalem. And in this new Jerusalem, you have people experiencing the presence of God from all over the world and learning the words of God. And we talked about how the gospel is fulfilled in this new Jerusalem where God doesn't dwell in a city in Israel on the other side of the globe. Thanks to our union with Christ and the resurrection of this, of this son, God dwells in us. And so now all over the world, nations pour in to gather, gather connected to Christ as we're connected to the son in, in the heavenly places and we worship and we experience God 
here today and we hear from him and we hear from his word. So we, we, get, we get all these beautiful pictures of the gospel as we work through the Old Testament, things that Isaiah longed to see. And I don't think we always stop and appreciate how much of the gospel that you and I, post the resurrection of Jesus, how much of the gospel we can actually dive into, we can actually soak in, we can actually consider. We get to see so much of the beauty of the death and resurrection of the Son of God, things that the, the prophet that we're reading today would have died to see and, and, do, and, and does see today in the heavenly places. So this morning, I just wanna ask, I want the Lord to help us see the beauty of the gospel in chapters six and seven, and just not, not take those things for granted, to see the beauty and the wonder of the gospel and just be more in love with the person of Jesus Christ. I want our, I want our affections to be stirred. I want our affections to be drawn towards Christ as we work through the book of Isaiah in ways that the prophet himself could only dream of. So let's pray And let's see if we can find more of Christ in chapter six and seven. So let's pray with me. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you. Thank you for the fact that you have sent your spirit to draw us to yourself. Um, I thank you that you've sent your spirit to open our eyes just to see the beauty of who Christ is, Lord. Um, We need your help with that. We can't Paul says the natural man cannot understand spiritual things. Lord, we need the spirit to reveal the wonder and amazement of our Savior, Lord. So I I pray this morning as we we look at this long passage, I pray that we would uh, come away thinking more and and knowing more about who Christ is, Lord, so that we could be transformed. So um, we pray and we ask for wisdom and faith, knowing that you grant us these things. In your name I pray, amen. All right, I need to grab... A drink of water. Sorry. So this morning we're going to talk about the beauty of the gospel in three dudes. Um, more like two dudes and a kid. We're going to see the beauty of the gospel in a prophet, in a king, and in a kid. So we're going to talk about a prophet, a king, and a kid. Uh, so let's start with... Uh, Verse one, thanks for the help, Cole. Look at the beginning of chapter six. He says, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord. This is Isaiah speaking. He's in the temple in Jerusalem and all of a sudden the heavenly realm is open to him and he, and he has quite the experience. Uh, keep reading. I, and I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne high and lifted up and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim, each had six wings. With two, he covered his face, and with two, he covered his feet, and with two, he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. Now, I preached this uh, from Revelation chapter four a while back. If you're interested in some of the like, details of this vision, you can go check that out on our website. But essentially what the prophet sees here is they're, they're, they're taken up into heaven and they see the heavenly throne. And this is a, this is a pretty consistent vision across scripture. Uh, Ezekiel and uh, Isaiah see this vision in the Old Testament. 
And John sees this vision in Revelation chapter four in the New Testament. But what you have right here is you have the, you have the veil of the earthly realm being removed so that the prophet can get a peek into the heavenly realm, into the, the, the heavenly throne room. And it's, you know, I had this feeling before, but as a, as a preacher, uh, you probably never feel more inadequate than when you try to describe the very holiness of God or the weight of actually what's going on right here. I mean, we have heavenly creatures crying out, holy, 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 which is like the, the Hebrew version of bold, italicized, all caps saying, this is the creator of the universe and he is so separate, so other, so different from us that holy, sinless angels has to cover their eyes as they worship this creator. And then what happens when the one who calls speaks? The temple shakes. Elsewhere, it's described as the earth shakes. There's a a great earthquake, and his voice is described as the voice of of many waters, this idea of just the roar of a waterfall. And if you've ever been near like a huge waterfall, just the roar of the water is how his voice is described. And you, you can only use the words that we have in Scripture for this because you're just trying to kind of come to grips with what's going on. And it's just meant to be this like overwhelming, thought-capturing picture of the very presence of a holy, holy, holy God. So what happens when this great prophet of God sees this? What happens when Isaiah, the one who speaks for God, is in the very presence of God? Look at what he says in verse 5. And I said, woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. And this is where I have to lean on others. I like this quote. Listen to how R.C. Sproul describes Isaiah's reaction in his book called The Holiness of God. Sproul says, Isaiah was groveling on the floor, Every nerve fiber in his body was trembling. He was looking for a place to hide, praying that somehow the earth would cover him or the roof of the temple would fall upon him. Anything to get him out from under the holy gaze of God, but there was nowhere to hide. He was naked and alone before God. Unlike Adam, Isaiah had no Eve to comfort him, no fig leaves to conceal him. His was pure moral anguish the kind that rips out the heart of man and tears his soul into pieces. Guilty, guilty, guilty. Relentless guilt screamed from his every pore. That's intense. And Isaiah's word choice is kind of meant to to help us understand what's going on. He says, woe is me. This is Isaiah standing before the very perfection of God, and he can't help but recognize that he, like all, all the six woes from the last chapter that Ben talked about, Isaiah the prophet himself is just as guilty and just as much part of the problem. When Isaiah the prophet stands before a holy God, just like the rest of Israel, he has, a, he has an unclean mouth, he is a vineyard that produces rotten fruit, And Isaiah needs to be uprooted and completely thrown out. 
So much for this prophet. But God jumps in with a picture of the good news. God jumps in to teach us about a better prophet. Look at what God does in verses six through the first part of seven. Then one of the seraphim, which is like the angels, flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar, and he touched my mouth. Think about this. This is a coal from the heavenly altar that the angel has to use tongs for because it's too hot for him. And God approached, and the angel approaches Isaiah and presses this hot, burning coal against his mouth. Like you can almost like hear the sizzling of his flesh. This has to be one of the most painful experiences for the prophet Isaiah. Because this is fire and destruction of the prophet's mouth is a picture of the very punishment and wrath of God being poured out on a man who is completely undone by the very presence of God. God has brought his judgment on the prophet Isaiah. Look what happens in verse seven. It's almost not what we would expect. And he touched my mouth and said, behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin is atoned for. How does the sinful, woe is me, wicked prophet now have his sin atoned for? Now is no longer considered guilty. How does he make it through the fiery wrath of God's judgment? How is this possible? The angel gives us a clue when he says, your sin is atoned for. Your sin is atoned for. It's a word that has its roots and covered. Your sin is covered. Wicked Isaiah can pass through the fiery judgment of God because his sins are now covered. And right here, we have a picture of what the better prophet will do. We need a better prophet who can stand before a holy God and pass through the fiery judgment of God to cover the sins of not just this prophet, but all of the people of God. Isaiah should have never survived this, but this is a picture of the gospel, a picture of the good news pointing us to a better prophet that will survive the fiery judgment of God and that will enable sinners like me, like you, to be atoned for, to be covered, to be covered from this judgment. And this is the beauty of the gospel seen in the prophet himself. The beauty that we can survive the fiery judgment of God because we have a better prophet who atones or covers our sins. You and I, just like Isaiah, we shouldn't be able to, but you and I, just like Isaiah, can come out on the other side better off. Look at what happens when he comes out on the other side forgiven. Look at verses 8 through 13. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then I said, here I am, send me. All of a sudden, the prophet who couldn't even stand, who was groveling on the ground, trying everything he could to get away from the holy presence of God, can stand with confidence and draw attention to himself in the very throne room of God. 
What a change. Look at what God calls him to do now in verse nine. He said, go and say to this people, keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. Then I said, how long, O Lord? And he said, until cities lie waste without inhabitant and houses without people and the land is a desolate waste. And the Lord removes people far away and the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. And though a tenth of it remain in it, it will be burned again like a terebinth or an oak whose stump remains when it is felled. The holy seed is its stump. God says, go and tell the people, tell the people what I've already told you. Tell them that they won't see, that they won't listen, and that they will not turn and be healed. They're a vineyard that I have carefully taken care of, but they've rejected me over and over again. So tell them that they will no longer listen and turn. Make sure they know. And I think Isaiah's response is appropriate. He says, man, how long, oh Lord? He's not annoyed. He's, he's grieved at the position of his nation. He's grieved at the reality of the hardness of the hearts of the people. Isaiah might be cleansed, miraculously cleansed in this image, but he's a prophet who is called to proclaim the very words of God without the ability to affect the hearts of the people of God. He doesn't have the ability as he proclaims the words of God to affect the hearts of the people of God. And Isaiah knows this, but we need a better prophet who's able to speak the words of God and actually change the hearts of the people of God. And this is a, another aspect of the beauty of the gospel in Jesus is that we have a prophet today who through the spirit is actually able to take out our hearts of stone. He's able to use his words because he is the word and replace our hearts of stone with a heart of flesh. We have a prophet today who's able to accomplish what even cleansed Isaiah could not accomplish in his day. And that's the beauty of the gospel seen through a prophet. Here we have a, a prophet that's showing us that he can pass through judgment. He can pass through the judgment of God and that we need someone to do that for us. And we have a, we have a prophet who's pointing us towards a prophet who can change hearts by the word of God in us. And that's the beauty of the gospel in this office of prophet. So let's keep reading. Let's look at the, the beauty of the gospel in the king. Look at the first couple of verses in chapters one and two. In the days of Ahaz, the son of Jotham, son of Uzziah, king of Judah, Rezin, the king of Syria, and Pekah, the son of Remaliah, the king of Israel, came up to Jerusalem to wage war against it, but could not yet mount an attack against it. When the house of David was told, Syria is in league with Ephraim, the heart of Ahaz and the heart of his people shook as the trees of the forest shake before the wind. So here we have Ahaz. He is the king that secedes Uzziah. That's the king that died in uh, verse one of chapter six. But he hears about uh, Ephraim, which is his neighbor that he's been at wars with. He hears about his neighbor sort of making this political alliance with Syria, kind of another powerhouse of the day. He just hears about this. 
And he, he sees this partnership and says his heart shook as the trees of the forest shake before the wind. And I think, you know, at least, at least Isaiah was trembling before the presence of God. Ahaz hears of a political alliance and is already kind of weak in the knees. But just like God stepped in, stepped in with the prophet to calm his fears, God steps in with Ahaz to tell him that he doesn't need to be afraid. Look at what he says in verses three through nine. And the Lord said to Isaiah, go to meet Ahaz, you and Shear Jeshub, your son, at the end of the conduit of the upper pool on the highway to the washer's field and say to him, be careful, be quiet, do not fear, and do not let your heart be faint because of these two smoldering stumps of firebrands at the fierce anger of Rezin and Syria and the son of Remaliah, because Syria with Ephraim and the son of Remaliah has devised evil against you, saying, let us go up against Judah and terrify it and let us conquer it for ourselves and set up the son of Tabiel as king in the midst of it. God's like, look, I know their plan. Don't worry about it. Why look at verse seven? It says, thus says the Lord God, it shall not stand and it shall not come to pass. For the head of Syria is Damascus and the head of Damascus is resin. And within 65 years, Ephraim will be shattered from being a people. And the head of Ephraim is Samaria and the head of Samaria is the son of Remaliah. If you are not firm in faith, you will not be firm at all. He's like, look, Ephraim, your neighbor, you're all worried about, they're not even going to exist in 65 years. And I like how he calls them these two smoldering stumps, two kingdoms kind of burning out. He's like, they're not going to last. You have nothing to fear Ahaz. And he tells them at the end, if you're, if you're not firm in the faith, you will not be firm at all. God is looking at the king of his chosen nation, and he says, look, trust your father. He's taking care of this. You're my king. This is my nation. You can trust me. And if you can't trust me, you won't have any peace at all. You won't be firm at all. And see, it's interesting because Ahaz is not a good king by any stretch of the imagination. But here is God speaking to the king of his people the good news of the love and the care of the father. Here is God comforting his people by speaking truth to his king so that the king could protect and comfort God's people. And so this, it, it must fall on deaf ears because in verse 10, we get, we get an again. Verse 10 and 11, God has to go after Ahaz again. So it says, again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz. Ask a sign of the Lord your God. Let it be as deep as Sheol or as high as heaven. And so there's no evidence really that he trusted God. So again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz and this time was like, hey, why, why don't you ask me to prove it to you? I promise I'll, sh I'll show you whatever you want. I'll, I'll prove it to you. And look how he responds in verse 12. Ahaz said, I will not ask and I will not put the Lord to the test. And he said, this is Isaiah speaking, here then, O house of David, is it too little for you to weary men that you weary my God also? And it seems like kind of a confusing response right off the bat. It, but Ahaz is disguising his lack of trust in God was something kind of pious, something, something that sounds good, like, you know, hey, I, hey, I don't want to test the Lord. But the, the thing is, Isaiah knows that Ahaz has basically tried everything possible except for trusting the Lord. 
Ahaz has actually taken gold from the temple and tried to pay off another army. Uh, there's a story in Kings or Chronicles where Ahaz shuts the doors of the temple and says, hey, this nation's doing really good. Let's not sacrifice to God. Let's sacrifice to their God because this is, seems to be working out for them. And then on top of that, he goes so far out of his way to, to, to use his own means to sort of get out of these situations that Ahaz sacrifices his, his children. So when Ahaz says, I don't want to test the Lord. What he really means is there's no way I'm obligating myself to God. I'm going to do it my way. Which is why Isaiah responds the way he does. Isaiah's like, hey, I had to come back. Is it, is it not enough for you to weary me? And now God is coming to you again, graciously when you didn't even ask, and you would weary him? You would totally blow off our creator. This is, a, this is a bad king. God's people don't just need a better prophet. They need a better king. God's people need a king that, that not just listens to their father. They need a king that is able to comfort and protect his people. And Ahaz is neither of those things. And the, as the book of Isaiah goes on, eventually we'll see more and more that there's this servant figure that not only obeys the father, but has the protection and the government of God's people on his shoulders. Isaiah is starting in his work, and, and as, he, as he works through this, Isaiah is starting to teach us of the beauty of this better king by showing us the gap of this current king. And we can see the good news in this king if we look forward to a king, if we look forward to a king to come that listens to the Father and a king to come that can actually comfort and protect the people of God. And the good news is that God sees the gap of his current king and promises a gospel solution in a kid. We go from the beauty of the gospel in a prophet to the beauty of the gospel in a king and now God promises the solution in a kid. Look at verses 14 through 17. It says, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. He shall eat curds and honey when he knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good. For before the boy knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land whose two kings you dread will be deserted. So he says, before this boy knows how to refuse evil and choose the good, basically, before the time it takes for a child to know right from wrong, the people that you dread, the kings you dread will be deserted. But this kid, this kid that comes from the virgin is, is more than that. This kid from the virgin will be God himself. That's what, that's what Emmanuel means. I mean, you may have a little one or something on your Bible, but Emmanuel means God with us. God knows we need a better prophet. God knows we need a better king. And, and here is the answer in a kid. Here's the beauty of the gospel seen in a kid who is described as the very God of the universe, but with us, with you and I in this broken world. And this is, this is a really... This is a, a really bright light of the gospel breaking through in the book of Isaiah. 
Here you see the, the good news to the reality of a kid that's gonna come that's considered to be God himself, but with us, Emmanuel. And in the New Testament, Matthew actually quotes this section and says that the birth of Jesus was the fulfillment of this prophecy. And the very next section in the book of Matthew is the wise men showing up and saying, hey, where is this new king that was promised? Where is this king that's going to obey the Father and who will protect his people? And later, even in, in chapter 9, we'll get there in a couple of weeks in Isaiah, you get another mention of a kid who's called Mighty God, who will be a wonderful counselor and will have a kingdom better than the one that we have here. So, so this is Isaiah in chapters 6 and 7, through his role as a prophet and through Ahaz's role as a king, teaching us about what Emmanuel, God with us, will do. This is Isaiah teaching us about the beauty of a person and the work of Jesus, our better prophet, our better king, and the very God we worship as a person with us. And you and I get to understand the beauty of the gospel as we look at this passage in ways that Isaiah couldn't even dream of. And the, and the crazier part the crazier part about this passage is that Isaiah was looking forward to today. Today is when the better prophet king is here and is with us, with us through his spirit. This is a today reality. We have a, we have a prophet who has passed through the fiery judgment of God so that he could atone for, so that he could cover our sins. We have, a, we have a today reality of a prophet who sits on the throne and through his spirit has the power to actually transform and change the hearts of his people. That's gospel clarity that Isaiah could only dream of, and that's what we have today. And it's not just a better prophet. Today you have a king you have a king that's obeyed the father perfectly and is now sitting on the throne and is ruling and reigning to perfectly protect and comfort the people of God. And I thought about the election this week. There was 156 million votes cast. And the king that we have ensured that every single one of those votes happened exactly how he wanted it to happen for the good and the building up of his church because that's the kind of authority he has. That's the king that we worship today. That's the good news of a king who's ruling and reigning for the good of his people. And that's the gospel clarity that Isaiah longed to see. And it's, it's easy to think that this king, that this prophet is distant. We, don't, we, don't, we can't see him. We don't touch him right now. But, he, but he's not. He's still with us. This is Matthew in his, his gospel this way. He says, behold, I will be with you now until the end of the age. He's still with us. He's still present with us. He's still united to us in, in a way that's, that's beyond even what the disciples could understand. Jesus says, it's better that I go so that the helper would come. He's still present with us through his Holy Spirit, through our union with him. That's the beauty of the gospel in Isaiah seen through a prophet, through a king, and through Emmanuel, God with us. That's the gospel beauty that Isaiah longed to understand.
that you and I have the privilege to understand today. And I think these are, these are all wonderful aspects of the beauty of the gospel. And if you're tasting just like a tiny bit of how beautiful Jesus is, then the Spirit is working a miracle to transform you even today. That's what the Spirit does. So what's our take home? How do we apply the things that we learn about the gospel today? Honestly, we dwell on this more. Pleading with you, begging you. When you go to lunch today, when you enjoy your lunch today, consider the beauty of Jesus Christ. When you get stressed at work this week, consider the wonder of the prophet today that's able to change your heart. When your spouse stresses you out, think about, dwell on, consider the wonder of the gospel. When you book a fun trip into the mountains, take time to consider and bathe in the wonder of things that Isaiah longed to see. And if you do that, I promise you, you will be transformed. So what's our, what's our take home? Fix your heart on the beauty of the gospel this week and all the other issues around you. All the other things in this world will begin to fade because they can't compare to the wonder and the majesty of our prophet king who's with us today. That's what you should do. Think more often about Jesus. And Isaiah would be jealous of you. But he did know that he was writing these things. Isaiah knew that he was writing these things for you. Those of us on whom the end of the age has come. So thanks be to God for this unspeakable gift. More good news in the prophet king who is with us now and for all eternity. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, I, you come after us and you come after Ahaz and you tra transform Isaiah. Lord, you, through your spirit, are pursuing us relentlessly. Lord, I pray that, um, I pray that that would just be more real to us as we consider just the wonder of your son sitting on his throne today, Lord. I pray that because of what we understand about you from Isaiah, that the thought of you would be something that comes to mind more this week than the week before. Lord, I, I pray these things and I, I ask these things with confidence knowing that, that it's the work of the spirit to reveal the son. And as we see him, as we behold him, we, not maybe, we are transformed more and more into your image. Lord, I thank you for just the beauty of the gospel in the book of Isaiah. I pray that we would continue, and just, we would just be more and more impressed with what, 
what you're doing today through what Isaiah wrote almost 3,000 years ago. I thank you for the opportunity to gather as a people united to you, um, to gather and worship you and experience you today. Uh, In your name I pray, amen.